Uh, before we dive in, though, I just want to remind us a little bit of what's happened so far. I'm not going to go all the way back to the beginning, but just kind of where we find ourselves now. Um, so for those of you who haven't been with us, uh, Jesus has entered into the city of Jerusalem, which if you're not familiar with the Jewish uh, religious context at that time, that's the most significant city to Jewish people at that time. Uh, and he's doing it during Passover, which is the most important religious festival to people at that time. And he finds himself confronting the political and religious leaders, the most important people at that time in the temple, which is the most central building to the Jewish religious uh, person at that time. So this is stacked with a lot of... um, of buildup, like there's some tension that's happening. And over the past few weeks, we've explored this continual confrontation that Jesus has had with the religious leaders. They seem threatened by him. And so he comes onto the scene and they try and trap him. They try and trick him. They try and catch him in his words. And Jesus being Jesus doesn't fall for any of it. And finally, they just give up. Now you think that Jesus would be like smart and uh, just say, okay, I won. I'm I'm just going to sit on that for a little while. Uh, But no, Jesus decides to poke the bear a little bit. And and that's where we're going to find ourselves today. So so Jesus isn't just going to let this go. He's actually going to blast the religious leaders. And we're going to cover this for the next couple weeks. uh, And he's going to critique them. And and we're going to walk through that today a little bit because I think that critique might have something for us as well. Uh, But before we dive into that, quick question for you all. Uh, And the fun thing is now there's people in the theater so you actually can respond. Uh, Someone quickly tell me, what's a photobomb? What is a photobomb? Yeah, yeah. Okay, someone said, when you put yourself in somebody's picture. Great answer. Essentially, a photobomb is like someone is taking a picture of someone else, and and you decide, oh, I want to be the center of attention, so I'm not jumping on their thing. I have uh, two kids. My daughter, Isla, is two and a half, and my son, Ben, is, is about 10 months. And he's at that stage where he's really, like, he's getting a little bit more exciting. He's starting to crawl a little bit more. He's getting to that point where he's, he's getting to, you know, let, starting to stand up on things. Super cute. And we're taking pictures and videos of him all the time. My daughter, Isla, can't handle it. She's like, Mommy, Daddy, why are you not the center of your universe anymore? And so we're taking pictures of Ben, and she's like, like she j- j- jumps in on him, like, pushes him aside. Like, it, it kind of reminds me of, like, what it's like being in the office with Chris sometimes. He's on sabbatical for three months, so uh, I can throw shade, and he's not going to find out about it. Or, well, I'm, you're all going to text him. Who am I kidding? <laughs> um, but seriously, yeah, so a photobomb is, is essentially when, when someone else is the, the center of attention, the focal point of a picture, and we try and jump in on that to bring attention to ourselves. And I think what Jesus' critique is going to be today is going to be, in a sense, a critique of people who try and photobomb him, photobomb his glory. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to chapter uh, 23 of the book of Matthew. If you don't have Bibles, we have a couple at the front. Feel free to grab one or open it up on your phone app. Uh, and we're going to dive right into verse 1 of chapter 23. It says this, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Okay, I want to stop here for a second, uh, because you probably have some questions. At least I had some questions when I was uh, reading this. So the first question is, is, uh, Jesus seems to be saying, listen to the Pharisees, but... Like, if you paid attention to Matthew's gospel, he's constantly critiquing the Pharisees. He's constantly, like, battling them. He's constantly saying, like, don't do this kind of stuff. Don't be like these kind of people. 
So, so why is he suddenly switching gears all of a sudden, saying, no, obey the Pharisees? It was really critical for us to see that he, he bases this statement on this first phrase. It says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What's he talking about? What is Moses' seat? Essentially, if you're familiar with the, uh, the Jewish faith, you know that for them, the, the, the scriptures were the five books of our Old Testament written by Moses, the law, as they called it, the Torah. Uh, and of course, Jesus is not just thinking about that. He's thinking about the other parts of the Old Testament Bible, the prophets, the writings. And what he's recognizing is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the people primarily responsible for communicating God's word to the general people. He's saying, that's actually good. That's really important. You need to listen to God's word. In fact, if we go back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, which we did like three years ago, um, in chapter 5, verse 17, this is what Jesus actually says about the law. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus looks at the scriptures, he has a high view. He says these are significant. These are something that we need to pay attention to, that we need to come under the authority of. These are things that need to actually dictate the way that we live. Why is that? It just says in chapter 5, none of this will pass away until it's fulfilled. What needed to be fulfilled? Jesus. Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. The scriptures were there to point to him. They were there to, to help the people of Israel see their deep need for dependency, the deep need for a Savior, their deep need for someone to come and do what they could not, fulfill the law, do what it was calling them to do. And Jesus doesn't want them to put it aside because it's the only means by which they're going to be able to recognize Him. And so His critique of the Pharisees is potent here. In the second part of verse 3, He says, But do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to help them. The Pharisees, they had the right doctrine, the right belief. They had the scriptures. They were even communicating them to the people but they weren't actually transforming their hearts. They weren't changing their lives. They weren't changing the kind of people that they were. And then they had this, this habit where 
they wanted to lay on an entire load of burdens on other people. If you've, again, if you've been following with us for any amount of time, you know that they had this list of extraneous extra laws to keep you so far away from breaking these laws that you had to, to follow, and it became this incredible burden. Why would they do that? What was their motivation? Well, I'm sure if you talk to a Pharisee, they'd say, well, I care so much about obeying God that I don't want to even get close to disobeying him. But, but if we look at their actions, it shows that their hearts were actually in a different place. You see, they cared so much about what other people did because when they failed, it made them look better. What happens when you have this list of things that someone else is supposed to do and then they, they fall down on it. You're like, oh, uh, I did that. Hey, you should be a better parent. Look at, look at me. My kids are quiet. They're not you know, yelling and screaming in the drugstore. I'm a pretty good parent. I feel pretty good about myself. I'm awesome. Do I want to go help that person? No. Why? Because it makes me look like a better parent. This is exactly what's going on with the Pharisees. They have this list of laws, and when the people fail to hold up to them, the Pharisees look better. They lift themselves up. They get the glory. Jesus says, you guys have all this head knowledge, but it's not translating into heart transformation. Theologians have, uh, have used a particular expression to, to talk about this phenomena, and they call it dead orthodoxy. Uh, for those of you who are, not, who are not familiar with that word orthodoxy, it just kind of means right belief or right doctrine. You know the right things. Mark Sayers, who's a, a pastor and author and a bit of a cultural guru, he describes dead orthodoxy this way. He says, dead orthodoxy is when biblical faith is affirmed with our words and our thoughts, but the heart remains stagnant and unchanged. Doctrine is biblical but the spiritual life of the church or the believer, in this case the Pharisee, is dead. There's this book that the Jewish people are supposed to read and follow and allow it to shape them. Why? What was its purpose? Well, we, we said ultimately its purpose is to point... To, to Jesus, and I, and I do believe that's true, but uh, there, there's something more going on here. There's something more going on here. You see, ultimately, the, the people of God were created for a particular purpose. If we, if we go all the way back to the beginning of that book, of Genesis chapter 1, we see that God created human beings in his image. What does that mean? It means that we were supposed to uh, bring a picture of what God's like to the world around us. Why? To bring him glory. So that the world would bring him praise, that he would be the center focal point of all of creation. That was why we were created. Uh, one of the great kind of theological statements in the church world, uh, the Westminster Catechism, starts off with this statement, what is the chief aim of man to bring Glory to God is the answer. This is why we're recreated. God gives us this task to enjoy and love and live and, and bring about all of creation into flourishing. Why? So because it gave him glory. It, it, it showed the world how good, how awesome, how creative, how beautiful he was. And then 
we decide, God, I want a piece of that action. I don't like that you're in the, the focal point. I think I'm just going to jump in on your frame. I'm going to photobomb you. See, the human condition is one where we're constantly trying to photobomb God, photobomb Jesus, get in on his glory. And so, so what happens is the, the Pharisees, they have this book of the law. What was, what was its job? Its job was to help shape them and form them so that they could go back to being those people who brought glory to God. It actually says in, 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 the book of, uh, in one of the, the books of the law, I don't have it, the reference right in front of me, but, but that the, the people were supposed to live in such a way that the nations around them would start asking like, whoa, what's up with these guys? How do they have this incredible God who, who helps them live in such an incredible way? That was what their job was supposed to be. So, so what happens when you substitute something else for God in this law following? Well, you got to fill that void, right? Why, why follow these rules? And what do we naturally substitute? We substitute ourselves. Or we substitute someone else. We put that person as the motivation or the reason that we're supposed to be doing this. And, and this is what the Pharisees were doing. So rather than God receiving glory, they, they were following all these rules, but it, it wasn't actually about God, it was about them. So they had to lift themselves up. They had to make themselves feel better. Mark Sayers, again, he, he writes this of them. He says, the Pharisees were a significant reform movement within Judaism, advocating for the return to biblical faith. Unlike some of the other religious sects in Jesus' day, the Pharisees actually had super solid theology for the most part. Jesus and the Pharisees agreed on like most things theologically. And yet, Jesus probably goes hardest against the Pharisees in the gospel accounts. Sayers continues as he says, in much they were in agreement with Jesus, yet their patterns of renewal could not change the human heart. As Jesus showed, hypocrisy undergirded their surface-level religious observance. Jesus uses the Pharisees as an example to teach us that hypocrisy will inevitably accompany dead orthodoxy. Uh, Sarah's point is, uh, when you, you start to follow rules for the sake of your own glory, then eventually there's going to be this dichotomy that forms because you're doing it for outward appearances. And so what happens when there's no audience to see what you're actually doing? You're going to live a completely double life. But where does that come from? It all stems from a place where we don't have heart transformation. And in the case of the Pharisees, they had right doctrine, but it wasn't translating into a right heart. So I, I want to stop here for a second and just ask us, because I think it's important. You know, if, if you're anything like me, you've grown up in probably the church world. And if you're in this room or you're watching online, chances are like 90% of you have grown up in some kind of churched environment or you've been part of a church for a long time. It's important to ask this question, is my orthodoxy dead? Is it dying? Is it diminished? Is what I say I believe in my head actually reflected in heart transformation that leads to right action? Here's a couple of diagnostic questions for us. Number one, ask yourself, do I point out other people's sins and minimize my own? 
when I was in my first year of college, uh, we had this retreat. Uh, it was in a, s- a small program. We had this uh, retreat, and uh, it was a Christian program. And uh, we had this really vulnerable moment where we were just kind of sharing what was going on in each other's lives and hearts. And I remember this, this girl in our program, uh, she just came forward and she confessed that, you know, her and her boyfriend had been sleeping together and, and she was really broken up about it. And, you know, my response was so unhealthy at the time. You know, I was so filled with pride and I was like actually angry at her. I was like, how dare you do this? You know you're not supposed to do that. It's like, you know, a big thing. And the ironic thing is at the time, I was battling a pornography addiction. But in my head, I could justify what I was doing against her. Why? Because my orthodoxy was wrong. I mean, if you ask me, like, would I say, you know, all sexual sin is a problem? Yes, absolutely. But I had created categories in my mind to make myself look better so I could walk around feeling like I'm doing good rather than being humbled and recognizing I, too, need a transformation. How about you? Is it easy for you to look at other people and think, ah, you know what, there's some areas in my life that, you know, they need some work, but I'm not like that guy. I'm not like that lady. Here's a second question for us. Are you more moved by knowledge acquisition over heart transformation? You know, when when you get into studying the Bible, reading it for yourself, coming to a gathering like this on a Sunday, you know, if if you're part of West Village, maybe you're part of a DNA group, do you get more excited about, like, a new fact or tidbit than you do actually about getting, like, confronted and convicted and transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit? If so, it it might be possible that your orthodoxy is dead, dying, or diminished. Here's a third one for us. Has the gospel become basic or boring to you? We have this question that we we ask sometimes uh, with the staff and elders. Uh, The question is, when was the last time you wept over the gospel? You know, I'm not a crier, so maybe weeping isn't the right term. Uh, but when was the last time you were moved by it? I mean, think about the significant moments of your life, your wedding, your kid's birth, you know, really significant, I mean, maybe even moments of loss. You know, do you still have something for those moments? Probably most of us do, right? Some of us still have some kind of reaction to that, but this is the most significant transformation that has ever happened in our life. The God of the universe who we rebelled against, who we tried to steal his glory from, humbled himself, came down as a human being, lived the perfect life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserved on our behalf, and invites us now as adopted sons and daughters into his family, empowers us by his spirit for his mission. Church, that is not insignificant. Church, that is not insignificant. That is the core of why we exist. Has it become basic? Just look at that and be like, yeah, I I got that when I first came, but I'm on to like new and improved Christianity. There is no new and improved Christianity. This is Christianity. 
This is what it means. It means that we are dependent on God to do what we cannot, and we never stop being dependent. If you come to a point where the gospel becomes boring or basic, it might be that your orthodoxy is dead. And Jesus goes on to describe what dead orthodoxy actually looks like. He says in verse 5, everything they do, meaning the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Uh, You're probably wondering what the heck is a phylactery? I also was wondering what a phylactery was. Uh, So uh, phylacteries were these little leather boxes that people would tie onto their forehead or onto their arm. And the purpose of a phylactery was it was actually a, a literal way to try and live out one of the commandments in the Old Testament, which was God would have portions of Scripture. We'd say, like, bind this on your heart and on your forehead so you don't forget about it. So they'd fill these leather boxes with, like, a bunch of Bible verses, and they'd go around. And, of course, you can imagine how this would look. You're walking around, and someone's like, Oh, my gosh, look at that guy's phylacteries! It was a way of virtue signaling. It was a way of of having everyone look at you and be like, oh, that person's so holy. He must know so much about the Bible. Look at those phylacteries. They're massive. Uh, Same thing with tassels. You see, in the Old Testament, God called the people of Israel to, to put these tassels, and they were there as a reminder for them to come in prayerful dependency to him. So you're walking around and you got this like massive like ball ta- like tassel with like, you know, kind of the, the little strings hanging down to your ankles and everyone's like, that guy must be so dedicated to prayer. He can't forget it because he's got, you know, like a, a paperweight on him. And these were ways of really showing everyone else what you were doing. What were they for? They were there for you to have a personal connection with God so that your heart would be transformed. Why were they doing it? So that everyone else would, ooh, and ah, and how holy is that person? That's the guru we need. That's the person we need to listen to. That's the person we want to invite to our parties. That's the person who should be speaking to us and teaching us. Dead orthodoxy means that rather then humbly following God out of love and devotion for him, for the purpose of him receiving glory, because he gets glory when we do that. We want to take that glory for ourselves. So we want the recognition. We want the power. We want the prestige. In our heads, we may believe right things about God but our actions show that our hearts don't really internalize them. And they're all just ways of photobombing Jesus. Because rather than him getting glory, we want it for ourselves. When I was uh, uh, pastoring in Edmonton, I remember sitting with this uh, young adult, um, and he was a musician, loved to play. He's he's decently talented. And, um, And I was having this conversation with him, um, because he was just dejected about where life had taken him. 
And I remember asking him, you know, well, what do you want to do with your life? He's like, no, God's told me what I'm going to do with my life. I am like, I'm going to be famous and I'm going to like do a lot with my music and, and that's how I'm going to bring glory to God. And I was like, okay, what if, what if that's not really what God wants for you? Like, what if, if God just wants you to like worship him in private? Like, what if he's giving you this gift so that the only way that you use it is to, to bring praise and glory to him? He's like, no, I could never, I could never worship a God like that. I don't want to be with a God like that. What's going on? See, he didn't really care about God's glory. He wanted the glory. He was photobombing Jesus. Anytime we virtue signal, anytime we, we do something with mixed motives or we do something for someone else, it is so easy for that to become means by which we photobomb Jesus. You know, if I'm being really honest, I do this all the time. You know, I, I come here on Sundays, and, and I genuinely, and I, I'm, I'm being honest here, I genuinely uh, love that I get to do this, and I get to, to use some of the gifts that God's given me to preach and proclaim his word, uh, not just to you, but to myself. And, and I, I pray and I hope that some of what happens, uh, that the Spirit takes that and works it in different people's hearts and there brings about change and transformation. And that's true. I care about that. But there's this other part of me that comes up here and I'm like, oh, I also really like it when someone comes to me and says, Andrew, you did this. You helped me with this or you said this thing. There's this ego part of me that really, you know, maybe I'm not jumping all the way into the frame but I'm doing like the bunny ears to Jesus or I'm sticking my head over being like, it's so easy for you and when you're in this position of leadership to have mixed motivations, to want to get in on Jesus' glory. Some of you know, uh, know a little bit of our story. My wife Shannon and I, we moved to Victoria in, in 2016, at the end of 2016, um, because we, we wanted a church plant. And so we raised a ton of money. Uh, we, we hit up all of our friends and family. We're like, hey, can you support us? Because we're going to move to the third most expensive city in Canada. And I'm going to work like a basically minimum wage job. And she's in school. So can you help us out? We're going to come and be missionaries and maybe plant a church. And, you know, that first couple years, uh, we were... You know, we were, we were, I was working at this brewery, and I was, no, no, no other person there was a Christian. Uh, it was actually pretty hilarious and awesome. I had some great conversations, and I shared the gospel a ton. Uh, and, and to this day, and I, I'll be honest, to this day, I've yet to see, and I've shared the gospel many times. We have dozens of people in our homes, maybe hundreds of people in our homes. We've had several conversations. I've yet to see someone fully say yes to Jesus. We've had people who've come along and journeyed with us for a time, and we've had great conversations with, but, but we haven't had that moment yet where I've got to sit in like a baptismal tank and say, whew, you did it. Like, the Spirit moved and opened your heart, and that kills me sometimes, but it doesn't kill me for the right reasons. It doesn't kill me because that person isn't a Christian. Like some, they're, they're, don't, don't get me wrong, okay? Don't get me wrong. I actually care about that a lot. But it is so easy for that to shift and for me to care more about the fact that there were people who supported us and counted on us, and, and we don't have the things that we wanted to have to show for it. But what's the problem? Their problem is I wanted the glory for me. I wanted people to say like, oh, Andrew, look, we sent you. You're a great missionary. You can like teach us about how to do this stuff. 
It's so easy for even mission to be a spot where I'm trying to photobomb Jesus. So here's a couple of questions for us. Ask yourself this, do I want to glorify Jesus? But like I just shared, I also want the glory too. Second question. Do I hide my sins because I want affirmation? Those of you familiar with the story of the woman at the well, I think it's in John chapter 3 or John chapter 4. Jesus is in Samaria and there's this woman, she's there at midday. She's there at midday, which is like the hottest point of the day. No one goes to get water at that point, but she has this sordid sexual past that the town kind of knows about and she doesn't want to have to face up to anyone. She's ashamed, she's hiding it. So she goes there when no one else is supposed to be there and Jesus confronts her and he, he brings salvation to her and he, he tells her that you need to rely on me as your living water. And the result is that she becomes unashamed. She doesn't have to hide her sin. She goes around and tells everyone, hey, yeah, I know I'm the person who did this, this, and this. Jesus told me about it, but guess what? He has living water. You gotta come and know him. When our orthodoxy turns from dead to alive, our sins don't matter because we don't care about the glory. If they bring more glory to Jesus, then we want to celebrate that. So when we have parts of our life that are broken or disgusting or things that are in process, we can share those things because ultimately it reminds the world that Jesus is great that he was necessary, that he was needed, that he's the only one who can change and transform us. But when we're more concentrated in trying to get glory for ourselves, it's so easy to hide those things. And so you can go into something like a DNA group, these accountability groups that we have in our church, and you can have superficial conversation after superficial conversation. Why? Because you don't actually want to let Jesus in to have the glory. You want to protect yourself so you can protect your glory. There's a third question. Three, not two, three. Uh, Do you become bitter when God uses others instead of you? When you hear other people's stories and you think, man, I just wish that could have been me. Why isn't God doing this in my life? We have these beautiful Jesus stories, and I love that we do them. And we call them Jesus stories because we want it to be pretty clear that this isn't these people who are being celebrated, uh, their work, but the work of the Spirit through them. And you can watch that and just be like so stoked on what Jesus is doing through our church, or you can watch that and think, oh, I wish that was happening to me. I wish I could be up there. That might be an indicator that you're trying to photobomb Jesus. One final question. Am I more concerned about my public performance than my private devotion? Do you spend a lot of time thinking about how you relate to people in the public sphere and yet it doesn't actually reflect back on how you live your private life? Maybe as a husband or a wife or a parent, when you're out in public, everything looks happy, everything looks good, but behind doors... It's a completely different story. Here's a, an interesting one. Prayer. Prayer. And there's two ways that this can actually pan out. 
some of us, we, we get into times of prayer and, and it's public and we're praying with other people and I find myself oftentimes falling into this trap where, you know, rather than sitting and just engaging with other people in a conversation with Jesus, we really want to sound good. And so you start thinking about all the ways that you can sound good in prayer. Well, what happens when you sound really, really good in your public prayer, but the reality is, is like at home you don't pray at all? You have no prayer life. And this doesn't necessarily have to be just, uh, just in terms of like your, your output. Sometimes it can be your refusal to output. There's two sides of this coin because when you care more about yourself and your glory, not only sometimes do you show off, but you also protect yourself against the places that you think you're weak. And some of you here today, you refuse to pray in public because you think you're going to look bad and you think you don't know what to say and you forget that this isn't about you at all. It's about God's glory. And you're protecting your glory. You're photobombing Jesus instead of allowing him to receive glory. And I want to say this. This is not just strictly something for church people. We live in probably one of the most religious cultures ever. And I don't mean that in the sense of people who go to church on a Sunday or go to temple on Sunday or go to mosque on Sunday. I mean that we have people who are Pharisees. We have a culture of Pharisees. What do we do? We virtue signal all the time. You don't need to be a Christian to virtue signal. You don't need phylacteries. All you need is hashtags or Facebook filters. What are those things? Why do we do them? So we look good. So we receive glory. We virtue signal Like the Pharisees, we put high expectations on everyone else. And what happens when they fail? We come down on them like a hammer. It's called cancel culture. We distance ourselves. We make ourselves look good at the expense of other people. This is not unique to Pharisees in religious contexts. This is true of Pharisees in all contexts. And the result of this is not a better world. See, when when we put our trust and our faith, when we highlight the right things, when we allow God to be in the frame and we stop trying to jump in on him, the world functions as he created it to because it functions for his glory. That means we love each other, we care for each other, we forgive each other. What happens when we try and make ourselves the focal point, the place where glory is coming? We tear everything else around us apart because we have to, because it's the only way we can continue to keep ourselves in an elevated state. And Jesus says, this is not how my church is going to function. You are to be a different kind of people. So listen to what he says in verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you are brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, this isn't how you function. He says, don't ever 
lift yourselves up, put yourself in a place of glory. Don't be the person who, who comes along and everyone says, you're my guru. You're the person who's going to help me. You're the person who's going to transform my life. He says, don't do that to other people. Jesus doesn't literally mean don't call anyone father. He means don't put someone in a position of this kind of fatherly spiritual elevation over you. And he goes on and says, again, don't try and look to anyone or be anyone to be the person who tells you how to live. There's only one person who can tell you how to live, and it's the person who lived perfectly in your be- on your behalf, the Messiah, me, Jesus. He makes it so explicitly clear for us as a church, we don't elevate anyone else. We don't elevate ourselves. And here's the ironic thing. We still do it all the time. Uh, some of us have been wa- uh, listening to this podcast series. It's called The Rise and, Hill, uh, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Mars Hill was a, a, a really theologically robust megachurch in the U.S. that actually was part of the inspiration, I think, even for West Village. You have to chat with Chris a little bit more about that, but I know it was at least an influence for him. And in so many ways, there was a lot to celebrate. And yet, at the core of this was, was a pastor uh, who at one point started telling people that he was the brand. He was the reason that the church should continue. He was the one that everyone should bring people to hear. I don't know how he missed it, but it says right here, we're not supposed to live like that as a church. But we do it all the time. We love lifting other people up. I mean, and, and then we see them fall because they cannot take the burden that only God can handle. We have, you know, tons and tons of examples. Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, uh, Carl Lentz. Like, you can make a list, like, probably the length of this theater of fallen pastors. Why? Because they were put in positions. We elevated them. We said, you're the man. You're the guru. They got God's glory. And God does not share his glory. He says, this is not how my church is supposed to function. But this isn't just a problem of megachurch pastors or megachurches. It can happen in any church. You can look at myself or Chris or anyone in here and put us on a place, a pedestal in your heart, look to us and call us Father. We're not. We're just brothers and sisters along with you. And the moment where we forget that and we stop living that way is a moment we're going to have problems. But it doesn't just mean people in leadership. It can happen to anyone. You can do it as a parent. You can start thinking of yourself as something to be celebrated. You can start just thinking about yourself. And, and that's the, the point where we take our eyes off Jesus and we move from a place of dead orthodoxy into photobombing him. And Jesus says, there's only one antidote. And the antidote is humbling yourselves. Humbling yourselves. Cool. That's your message. Go humble yourselves. Get out of here, right? No, we can't do it. We can't do it. We try all the time. And here's the, the stupid, ironic thing. As soon as you start trying to be humble, you've failed. Because you start lifting yourself up, you think, oh, yeah, I'm doing pretty good, this humbling thing. Done. You're not humble anymore. We can't do it. We, we are incapable. 
We have this innate desire to jump in on God's glory all the time. It's our natural default reaction. And Jesus says, the way that we're supposed to live is the greatest among you will be your servant for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Who is the greatest among us? That's Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Philippians 2. Did not consider quality with God something to be grasped, but took on the nature of a servant, humbled himself, became a human being, died the death that we deserved even though he was sinless. Why did he do that? For God's glory. Jesus is the one who humbled himself, and now he's exalted. You and I can't do this. We can't get to this place, but there's good news. The good news is that there's one who did. He did it. Jesus did it. He went and humbled himself in the way that you and I could never hope to. He was the only one who had his eyes completely off himself and completely on the Father all the time. And because he did that for us, he's actually invited us to look to him and his example to gaze upon Jesus and his work on our behalf to be transformed. So how do you be humble? You look to Jesus. Why do we talk about the gospel not just being basic? Because it's a regular reminder all the time to get our eyes off of ourselves and put them on Jesus. So how do you do that? Well, this is beautiful flip side of the coin. All those things that the Pharisees were doing, they were means by which someone could have come and recognized their dependency and need for Jesus, but they made them about themselves and their glory. But when we actually use those things for the way that they're meant to be used, they actually are means by which we regularly remind ourselves to look not at ourselves, but look to Jesus. So when you're sitting and you're praying, are you looking at Jesus? When you take time to read your Bible, are you trying to make it about yourself and how, you know, this is, you know, the promises that God has for you and this is how it's going to improve your life? Or do you look at what it tells you about the person and work of Jesus? As we finish off here, I just want to invite the, the band to come up. It's so easy for us to serve for other people or for ourselves to make ourselves feel good our glory and yet when we look to Jesus and his service example then we just serve because we love him we're looking at him we don't need to do religious things to impress other people we don't need to be threatened by other people's success we stop caring so much about our team or ourselves and we start caring more about God's kingdom because we want him to receive glory. So now I'm going to invite us, if you have your little cup of um, stuff, <laughs> um, yeah, take it with me. This is one of the, the ways that the church throughout time has been invited to gaze upon Jesus, to become humble before him, to be reminded of our dependency and our need for him. This is why we do it every Sunday. No matter what gets preached here at the front, we always finish with this invitation to take the cup 
and the bread and be reminded of the work of Jesus that was necessary on our behalf because we could not do it on our own. A way that we continually humble ourselves. So if you have the tasteless wafer, I'm pretty sure it's edible cardboard. Uh, be reminded, this is a symbol. It may be tasteless, but it's a symbol of the greatest fulfilling taste that we have, the taste of the work of Jesus on our behalf. Uh, on the night that he was going to be betrayed, the night he was going to the cross, he's met with his followers and he said, uh, as he broke bread with them, this is a picture of my body that's going to be broken for you. Whenever you meet together, do this in remembrance of me. So let's do this in remembrance of Jesus. Oh, gets worse every time. Um, later in the, the meal, a cup of wine was being passed around, and Jesus took that cup. And he said to his disciples, uh, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood that's going to be shed for you. Whenever you come together, drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink it in remembrance of Jesus. Let me just pray for us, and then I'll invite us to continue to respond by bringing Jesus glory as we praise him through song. Heavenly Father, I confess that so often it's so easy for me to step into a place where I want glory. We live in a world that promotes self-glory. We live in a church culture that celebrates self-glory. As Isaiah said when he came into your throne room, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Father, that's us. West Village is not immune to this. We can so easily celebrate ourselves, want our glory, want us to be elevated as individuals or as a church. And we need to stop looking at our own actions, our own means, and start looking at yours. Father, I just pray for, hum, uh, for a humbleness to come over our church family, that we would be uh, instruments in your hands to serve the other people, the other churches, the other Christians, those who aren't Christians in our city, not out of a motivation for ourselves to look good or look great or look glorious, but through a motivation to make you known so that you receive glory, that the city of Victoria would know more about you. Pray this in your name. Amen.